Hey guys, welcome to another World Audiobooks. Continuing on with the story of Tarzan, don't forget, if you want to have a say in what the next book that we do on Another World Audiobook should be, let me know. Just send me an email, anotherworldaudiobooks at gmail.com. And so, now without further ado, I give you Tarzan. Chapter 19. The Call of the Primitive From the time Tarzan left the tribe of great anthropoids in which he had been raised, it was torn by continual strife and discord. Turkos provided a cruel and capricious king, so that, one by one, many of the older and weaker apes, upon whom he was particularly prone to vent his brutish nature, took their families and sought the quiet and safety of the far interior. But at last, those who remained were driven to desperation by the continued truculence of Turkos, and it so happened that one of them recalled the parting admonition of Tarzan. "'If you have a chief who is cruel,' Do not do as the other apes do, and attempt any of you to pit yourself against him alone. But instead, let two or three or four of you attack him together. Then, if you will do this, no chief will dare to be other than he should be, for four of you can kill any chief who may ever be over you. And the ape, who recalled his wise counsel, repeated it to several of his fellows, so that when Turkos returned to the tribe that day, he found a warm reception awaiting him. There were no formalities. As Turkos reached the camp, five huge hairy beasts sprang upon him. At heart, he was an errant coward, which is the way with bullies among apes as well as among men, so he did not remain to fight and die, but tore himself away from them as quickly as he could and fled into the sheltering boughs of the forest. Two more attempts he made to rejoin the tribe, but on each occasion he was set upon and driven away. At last he gave it up and turned, foaming with rage and hatred, into the jungle. For several days he wandered aimlessly, nursing his spite and looking for some weak thing on which to vent his pent anger. It was in this state of mind that the horrible man-like beast, swinging from tree to tree, came suddenly upon two women in the jungle. He was right above them when he discovered them. The first intimation Jane Porter had of his presence was when the great hairy body dropped to the earth beside her, and she saw the awful face and the snarling, hideous mouth thrust within a foot of her. One piercing scream escaped her lips as the brute hand clutched her arm. Then she was dragged toward those awful fangs which yawned at her throat. But ere they touched that fair skin, another mood claimed the anthropoid. The tribe had kept his women. He must find others to replace them. This hairless white ape would be the first of his new household. And so he threw her roughly across his broad hairy shoulders and leaped back into the trees, bearing Jane away. Esmeralda's scream of terror had mingled once with that of Jane, and then, as was Esmeralda's manner and the stress of emergency which required presence of mind, she swooned. But Jane did not once lose consciousness. It is true that that awful face, pressing close to hers, and the stench of the foul breath beating upon her nostrils, paralyzed her with terror, but her brain was clear, and she comprehended all that transpired. With what seemed to her marvellous rapidity, the brute bore her through the forest, but still she did not cry out or struggle. The sudden advent of the ape had confused her to such an extent that she thought now that he was bearing her toward the beach. For this reason she conserved her energies and her voice until she could see that they had approached near enough to the camp to attract the succour she craved. She could not have known it, but she was being borne farther and farther into the impenetrable jungle. The scream that had brought Clayton and the two older men stumbling through the undergrowth had led Tarzan of the apes straight to where Esmeralda lay, but it was not Esmeralda in whom his interest centred, though, pausing over her, he saw she was unhurt. For a moment, 
He scrutinized the ground below and the trees above, until the ape that was in him by virtue of training and environment, combined with the intelligence that was his by right of birth, told his wondrous woodcraft the whole story as plainly as though he had seen the thing happen with his own eyes. And then he was gone again into the swaying trees, following the high-flung spore which no other human eye could have detected, much less translated. At bow's ends, where the anthropoid swings from one tree to another, there is most to mark the trail, but least to point the direction of the quarry. For there the pressure is downward always, toward the small end of the branch, whether the ape be leaving or entering a tree. Near the center of the tree, where the signs of passage are fainter, the direction is plainly marked. Here, on this branch, a caterpillar had been crushed by the fugitive's great foot, and Tarzan knows instinctively where the same foot would touch in the next stride. Here he looks to find a tiny particle of the demolished lava, oftentimes not more than a speck of moisture. Again, a minute bit of bark has been upturned by the scraping hand, and the direction of the break indicates the direction of the passage. Or, some great limb, or the stem of the tree itself, has been brushed by the hairy body, and a tiny shred of hair tells him by the direction from which it is wedged beneath the bark that he is on the right trail. Nor does he need to check his speed to catch these seemingly faint records of the fleeting beast. To Tarzan, they stand out boldly against all the myriad other scars and bruises and signs upon the leafy way. But strongest of all is scent for Tarzan is pursuing up the wind, and his trained nostrils are as sensitive as a hound's. There are those who believe that the lower orders are specially endowed by nature with better olfactory nerves than man, but it is merely a matter of development. Man's survival does not hinge so greatly upon the perfection of his senses. His power to reason has relieved them of many of their duties, and so they have, to some extent, atrophied, as the muscles which move the ears and scalp merely from disuse. The muscles are there, about the ears and beneath the scalp, and so are the nerves which transmit sensations to the brain, but they are underdeveloped because they are not needed. Not so with Tarzan of the Apes. From early infancy his survival had depended upon acuteness of eyesight, hearing, smell, touch, and taste far more than upon the more slowly developed organ of reason. The least developed of all in Tarzan was a sense of taste, for he could eat luscious fruit or raw flesh, long buried with almost equal appreciation, but in that, he differed but slightly from more civilized epicures. Almost silently, the ape-man sped on in the track of Turkals and his prey, but the sound of his approach reached the ears of the fleeing beast and spurred it on to greater speed. Three miles were covered before Tarzan overtook them, and then Turkals, seeing their further flight was futile, dropped to the ground into a small open glade that he might turn and fight for his prize or be free to escape unhampered if he saw that the pursuer was more than a match for him. He still grasped Jane in one great arm as Tarzan bounded like a leopard into the arena which nature had provided for this primeval-like battle. When Turkos saw that it was Tarzan who pursued him, he jumped to the conclusion that this was Tarzan's woman, since they were of the same kind, white and hairless, and so he rejoiced at this opportunity for double revenge upon his hated enemy. To Jane, the strange apparition of this godlike man was as wine to sick nerves— from the description which Clayton and her father and Mr. Philander had given her, she knew that this must be the same wonderful creature who had saved them, and she saw in him only a protector and a friend. But as Turkaz pushed her roughly aside to meet Tarzan's charge, and she saw the great proportions of the ape and the mighty muscles and the fierce fangs, her heart quailed. How could any vanquish such a mighty antagonist? Like two charging bulls they came together, and like two wolves sought each other's throats. Against the long canines of the ape was pitted the thin blade of the man's knife. Jane, 
Her lithe young form flattened against the trunk of a great tree, her hands tight pressed against her rising and falling bosom, and her eyes wide with mingled horror, fascination, fear, and admiration, watched the primordial ape battle with a primeval man for possession of a woman. For her. As the great muscles of the man's back and shoulders knotted beneath the tension of his efforts, and the huge biceps and forearms held at bay those mighty tusks, the veil of centuries of civilization and culture was swept away by the blurred vision of the Baltimore girl. When the long knife drank deep a dozen times of Turkos's heart's blood, and the great carcass rolled lifeless upon the ground, it was a primeval woman who sprang forward with outstretched arms toward the primeval man who had fought for her and won her. And Tarzan? He did what no red-blooded man needs lessons in doing. He took this woman in his arms and smothered her upturned panting lips with kisses. For a moment, Jane lay there with half-closed eyes. For a moment, the first in a young life, she knew the meaning of love. But, as suddenly as the veil had been withdrawn, it dropped again, and an outraged conscience suffused her face with its scarlet mantle, and a mortified woman thrust Tarzan of the apes from her and buried her face in her hands. Tarzan had been surprised when he had found the girl he had learned to love after a vague and abstract manner, a willing prisoner in his arms. Now he was surprised that she had repulsed him. He came close to her once more and took hold of her arm. She turned upon him like a tigress, striking his great breast with her tiny hands. Tarzan could not understand it. A moment ago, and it had been his intention to hasten Jane back to her people, but that little moment was lost now in the dim and distant past of things which were but can never be again. And with it, the good intentions had gone to join the impossible. Since then, Tarzan of the Apes had felt a warm, lithe form close pressed to his. Hot, sweet breath against his cheek and mouth had fanned a new flame to life within his breast. And perfect lips had clung to his in burning kisses that had seared a deep brand into his soul, a brand which marked a new Tarzan. Again, he laid his arm upon her. Again, she repulsed him. And then, Tarzan of the Apes did just what his first ancestor would have done— he took his woman in his arms and carried her into the jungle. Early the following morning, the four within the little cabin by the beach were awakened by the booming of a cannon. Clayton was the first to rush out, and there, beyond the harbour's mouth, he saw two vessels lying at anchor. One was the Arrow, and the other a small French cruiser. The sides of the latter were crowded with men gazing shoreward, and it was evident to Clayton, as to the others who had now joined him, that the gun which they had heard had been fired to attract their attention if they still remained at the cabin. Both vessels lay at a considerable distance from shore, and it was doubtful if their glasses would locate the waving hats of the little party far in between the harbour's points. Esmeralda had removed her red apron and was waving it frantically above her head. But Clayton, still fearing that even this might not be seen, hurried off toward the northern point, where lay his signal pyre ready for the match. It seemed an age to him, as to those who waited breathlessly behind, ere he reached the great pile of dry branches and underbrush. As he broke from the dense wood and came in sight of the vessel again, he was filled with consternation to see that the arrow was making sail and that the cruiser was already under way. Quickly lighting the pyre in a dozen places, he hurried to an extreme point of the promontory, where he stripped off his shirt and, tying it to a fallen branch, stood waving it back and forth above him. But still, the vessels continued to stand out, and he had given up all hope, when the great column of smoke, rising above the forest in one dense vertical shaft, attracted the attention of a lookout aboard the cruiser, and instantly a dozen glasses were leveled on the beach. Presently, Clayton saw the two ships come about again, and while the arrow lay drifting quietly on the ocean, the cruiser steamed slowly back toward the shore. 
At some distance away, she stopped, and a boat was lowered and dispatched toward the beach. As it was drawn up, a young officer stepped out. Monsieur Clayton, I presume? He asked. Thank God you have come, was Clayton's reply. And it may be that it is not too late even now. Uh, what do you mean, monsieur? asked the officer. Clayton told of the abduction of Jane Porter and the need of armed men to aid in the search for her. Mon Dieu! exclaimed the officer sadly. Yesterday, and it would not have been too late. Today, and it may be better that the poor lady were never found. It is horrible, monsieur. It is too horrible. Other boats had now put off from the cruiser, and Clayton, having pointed out the harbour's entrance to the officer, entered the boat with him, and his nose was turned toward the little landlocked bay, into which the other craft followed. Soon the entire party had landed where stood Professor Porter, Mr. Philander, and the weeping Esmeralda. Among the officers in the last boat to put off from the cruiser was the commander of the vessel, and when he had heard the story of Jane's abduction, he generously called for volunteers to accompany Professor Porter and Clayton in their search. Not an officer or a man was there of those brave and sympathetic Frenchmen who did not quickly beg leave to be one of the expedition. The commander selected twenty men and two officers, Lieutenant Dionon and Lieutenant Carpentier. A boat was dispatched to the cruiser for provisions, ammunition, and carbines, and the men were already armed with revolvers. Then, to Clayton's inquiries as to how they had happened to anchor offshore and fire a signal gun, the commander, Captain Dufronet, explained that a month before they had sighted the arrow bearing southwest under considerable canvas, and that when they had signaled her to come about, she had but crowded on more sail. They had kept her hull up until sunset, firing several shots after her, but the next morning she was nowhere to be seen. They had then continued to cruise up and down the coast for several weeks, and had about forgotten the incident of the recent chase, when, early one morning, a few days before, the lookout had described a vessel laboring in the trough of a heavy sea, and evidently entirely out of control. As they steamed nearer to the derelict, they were surprised to note that it was the same vessel that had run from them a few weeks earlier. Her forestay sail and mizzen spanker was set as though an effort had been made to hold her head up in the wind, but the sheets had parted, and the sails were tearing to ribbons in the half-gale of wind. In the high sea that was running, it was a difficult and dangerous task to attempt to put a prize crew aboard her, and as no signs of life had been seen above deck, it was decided to stand by until the wind and sea abated. But, just then, a figure was seen clinging to the rail, and feebly waving a mute signal of despair toward them. Immediately, a boat's crew was ordered out, and an attempt was successfully made to board the arrow. The sight that met the Frenchmen's eyes as they clambered over the ship's side was appalling. A dozen dead and dying men rolled hither and thither upon the pitching deck, the living intermingled with the dead. Two of the corpses appeared to have been partially devoured, as though by wolves. The prize crew soon had the vessel under proper sail once more, and the living members of the ill-started company carried below to their hammocks. The dead were wrapped in tarpaulins and lashed on deck to be identified by their comrades before being consigned to the deep. None of the living was conscious when the Frenchmen reached the arrow's deck. Even the poor devil who had waved the single despairing signal of distress had lapsed into unconsciousness before he had learned whether it had availed or not. It did not take the French officer long to learn what had caused the terrible condition aboard, for when water and brandy were sought to restore the men, it was found that there was none, nor even food of any description. He immediately signaled to the cruiser to send water, medicine, and provisions, and another boat made the perilous trip to the Arrow. When restoratives had been applied, several of the men regained consciousness, and then the whole story was told. The part of it we know up to the sailing of the Arrow after the murder of Snipes, and the burial of his body above the treasure chest. 
It seems that the pursuit of the cruiser had so terrorized the mutineers that they had continued out across the Atlantic for several days after losing her, but on discovering the meager supply of water and provisions on board, they had turned back toward the east. With no one on board who understood navigation, discussion soon arose as to their whereabouts, and as three days' sailings to the east did not raise land, they bore off to the north, fearing that the high north winds that had prevailed had driven them south of the southern extremity of Africa. They kept on a north-northeasterly course for two days, when they were overtaken by a calm which lasted for nearly a week. Their water was gone, and in another day they would be without food. Conditions changed rapidly from bad to worse. One man went mad and leaped overboard. Soon another opened his veins and drank his own blood. When he died, they threw him overboard also, though there were those among them who wanted to keep the corpse on board. Hunger was changing them from human beasts to wild beasts. Two days before they had been picked up by the cruiser, they had become too weak to handle the vessel, and that same day three men died. On the following morning, it was seen that one of the corpses had been partially devoured. All that day, the men lay glaring at each other like beasts of prey, and the following morning, two of the corpses lay almost entirely stripped of flesh. The men were but little stronger for their ghoulish repast, for the want of water was by far the greatest agony with which they had to contend, and then the cruiser had come. When those who could had recovered, the entire story had been told the French commander, but the men were too ignorant to be able to tell him at just what point on the coast the professor and his party had been marooned, so the cruiser had steamed slowly along within sight of land, firing occasional signal guns and scanning every inch of the beach with glasses. They had anchored by night so as not to neglect a particle of the shoreline, and it happened that the preceding night had brought them off the very beach, where lay the little camp they sought. The signal guns of the afternoon before had not been heard by those on shore, it was presumed, because they had doubtless been in the thick of the jungle searching for Jane Porter, when the noise of their own crashing through the underbrush would have drowned out the report of a far distant gun. By the time the two parties had narrated their several adventures, the cruiser's boat had returned with supplies and arms for the expedition. Within a few minutes, the little body of sailors and the two French officers, together with Professor Porter and Clayton, set off upon their hopeless and ill-fated quest into the untracked jungle. mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Chapter 20. Heredity When Jane realized that she was being borne away a captive by the strange forest creature who had rescued her from the clutches of the ape, she struggled desperately to escape, but the strong arms that held her as easily as though she had been but a day-old babe only pressed a little more tightly. So presently she gave up the futile effort and lay quietly, looking through half-closed lids at the face of the man who strode easily through the tangled undergrowth with her. The face above her was one of extraordinary beauty. 
a perfect type of the strongly masculine, unmarred by dissipation or brutal or degrading passions, for though Tarzan of the Apes was a killer of men and beasts, he killed as a hunter kills, dispassionately, except on those rare occasions when he had killed for hate, though not the brooding, malevolent hate which marks the features of its own kind with hideous lines. When Tarzan killed, he more often smiled than scowled, and smiles are the foundation of beauty. One of the things the girl noticed particularly when she had seen Tarzan rushing upon Turkoz, the vivid scarlet band upon his forehead, from above the left eye to the scalp, but now as she scanned his features, she noticed that it was gone, and only a thin white line marked the spot where it had been. As she lay more quietly in his arms, Tarzan slightly relaxed his grip upon her. Once, he looked down into her eyes and smiled, and the girl had to close her own to shut out the vision of that handsome, winning face. Presently, Tarzan took to the trees, and Jane, wondering that she felt no fear, began to realize that, in many respects, she had never felt more secure in her whole life than now, as she lay in the arms of this strong, wild creature, being born God alone knew where or to what fate, deeper and deeper into the savage fastness of the untamed forest. When, with closed eyes, she commenced to speculate upon the future, and terrifying fears were conjured by a vivid imagination, she had but to raise her lids and look upon that noble face, so close to hers, to dissipate the last remnant of apprehension. No, he could never harm her. Of that she was convinced when she translated the fine features and the frank, brave eyes above her into the chivalry which they proclaimed. On and on they went through what seemed to Jane a solid mass of verdure, yet ever there appeared to open before this forest guard a passage, as by magic, which closed behind them as they passed. Scarce a branch scraped against her, yet above and below, before and behind, the view presented naught but a solid mass of inextricably interwoven branches and creepers. As Tarzan moved steadily onward, his mind was occupied with many strange and new thoughts. Here was a problem, the like of which he had never encountered, and he felt, rather than reasoned, that he must meet it as a man, and not as an ape. The free movement through the middle terrace, which was the route he had followed for the most part, had helped to cool the ardour of the first fierce passion of his newfound love. Now he discovered himself speculating upon the fate which would have fallen to the girl had he not rescued her from Turkoz. He knew why the ape had not killed her, and he commenced to compare his intentions with those of Turkoz. True, it was the order of the jungle for the male to take his mate by force, but could Tarzan be guided by the laws of the beasts? Was not Tarzan a man? But what did men do? He was puzzled, for he did not know. He wished that he might ask the girl, and then it came to him that she had already answered him in the futile struggle she had made to escape and to repulse him. But now they had come to their destination— and Tarzan of the Apes with Jane in his strong arms swung lightly to the turf of the arena where the great apes held their councils and danced the wild orgy of the dum-dum. Though they had come many miles, it was still but mid-afternoon, and the amphitheater was bathed in the half-light which filtered through the maze of encircling foliage. The green turf looked soft and cool and inviting. The myriad noises of the jungle seemed far distant and hushed to a mere echo of blurred sounds, rising and falling like the surf upon a remote shore. A feeling of dreamy peacefulness stole over Jane as she sank down upon the grass where Tarzan had placed her, and as she looked up at his great figure towering above her, there was added a strange sense of perfect security. As she watched him from beneath half-closed lids, Tarzan crossed the little circular clearing toward the tree upon the farther side. She noted the graceful majesty of his carriage, the perfect symmetry of his magnificent figure, and the poise of his well-shaped head upon his broad shoulders. What a perfect creature! 
There could be naught of cruelty or baseness beneath that godlike exterior. Never, she thought, had such a man strode the earth since God created the first in his own image. With a bound, Tarzan sprang into the trees and disappeared. Jane wondered where he had gone. Had he left her there to her fate in the lonely jungle? She glanced nervously about. Every vine and bush seemed but the lurking place of some huge and horrible beast waiting to bury gleaming fangs into her soft flesh. Every sound she magnified into the stealthy creeping of a sinuous and malignant body. How different now that he had left her. For a few minutes that seemed hours to the frightened girl, she sat with tense nerves, waiting for the spring of the crouching thing that was to end her misery of apprehension. She almost prayed for the cruel teeth that would give her unconsciousness and secrease from the agony of fear. She heard a sudden, slight sound behind her. With a cry, she sprang to her feet and turned to face her end. There stood Tarzan, his arms filled with ripe and luscious fruit. Jane reeled and would have fallen, had not Tarzan, dropping his burden, caught her in his arms. She did not lose consciousness, but she clung tightly to him, shuddering and trembling like a frightened deer. Tarzan of the apes stroked her soft hair and tried to comfort her and quiet her as Kayla had done him when, as a little ape, he had been frightened by Sabor, the lioness, or Hister, the snake. Once he pressed his lips lightly upon her forehead, and she did not move, but closed her eyes and sighed. She could not analyze her feelings, nor did she wish to attempt it. She was satisfied to feel the safety of those strong arms, and to leave her future to fate. For the last few hours had taught her to trust this strange wild creature of the forest, as she would have trusted but a few men of her own acquaintance. As she thought of the strangeness of it, there commenced to dawn upon her the realization that she had, possibly, learned something else which she had never really known before. Love. She wondered, and then she smiled. And, still smiling, she pushed Tarzan gently away, and looking at him with a half-smiling, half-quizzical expression that made her face wholly entrancing, she pointed to the fruit upon the ground, and seated herself upon the edge of the earthen drum of the anthropoids, for hunger was asserting itself. Tarzan quickly gathered up the fruit, and, bringing it, laid it at her feet. And then he, too, sat upon the drum beside her, and with his knife opened and prepared the various fruits for her meal. Together, and in silence, they ate, occasionally stealing sly glances at one another, until finally Jane broke into a merry laugh in which Tarzan joined. "'I wish you spoke English,' said the girl. Tarzan shook his head, and an expression of wistful and pathetic longing sobered his laughing eyes. Then Jane tried speaking to him in French, and then in German. But she had to laugh at her own blundering attempt at the latter tongue. Anyway, she said to him in English, you understand my German as well as they did in Berlin. Tarzan had long since reached a decision as to what his future procedure would be. He had had time to recollect all he had read of the ways of men and women in the books at the cabin. He would act as he imagined the men in the books would have acted, were they in his place. Again he rose and went into the trees, but first he tried to explain by means of signs that he would return shortly, and he did so well that Jane understood and was not afraid when he had gone. Only a feeling of loneliness came over her, and she watched the point where he had disappeared with longing eyes, awaiting his return. As before, she was appraised of his presence by a soft sound behind her, and turned to see him coming across the turf with a great armful of branches. Then he went back again into the jungle, and in a few minutes reappeared with a quantity of soft grasses and ferns. Two more trips he had made until he had quite a pile of material at hand. 
Then he spread the ferns and grasses upon the ground in a soft, flat bed, and above it leaned many branches together, so that they met a few feet above its centre. Upon these he spread layers of huge leaves of the great elephant's ear, and with more branches and more leaves he closed one end of the shelter he had built. Then they sat down together again, upon the edge of the drum, and talked by way of signs. The magnificent diamond locket which hung about Tarzan's neck had been a source of much wonderment to Jane. She pointed to it now, and Tarzan removed it, and handed the pretty bauble to her. She saw that it was the work of a skilled artisan, and that the diamonds were of a great brilliancy and superbly set, but the cutting of them denoted that they were of a former day. She noticed, too, that the locket opened, and, pressing the hidden clasp, she saw the two halves spring apart, to reveal in either section an ivory miniature. One was of a beautiful woman, and the other might have been a likeness of the man who sat beside her, except for a subtle difference of expression that was scarcely definable. She looked up at Tarzan to find him leaning toward her, gazing on the miniature with an expression of astonishment. He reached out his hand for the locket and took it away from her, examining the likeness within with unmistakable signs of surprise and new interest. His manner clearly denoted that he had never before seen them, nor imagined that the locket opened. This fact caused Jane to indulge in further speculation, and it taxed her imagination to picture how this beautiful ornament came into the possession of a wild and savage creature of the unexplored jungle of Africa. Still more wonderful was how it contained the likeness of one who might be a brother, or, more likely, the father of this woodland demigod, who was even ignorant of the fact that the locket opened. Tarzan was still gazing with fixity at the two faces. Presently, he removed the quiver from his shoulder, and emptying the arrows upon the ground, reached into the bottom of the bag-like receptacle, and drew forth a flat object, wrapped in many soft leaves, and tied with bits of long grass. Carefully, he unwrapped it, removing layer after layer of leaves, until at length he held a photograph in his hand. Pointing to the miniature of the man within the locket, he handed the photograph to Jane, holding the open locket beside it. The photograph only served to puzzle the girl still more, for it was, evidently, another likeness of the same man whose picture rested in the locket beside that of the beautiful young woman. Tarzan was looking at her with an expression of puzzled bewilderment in his eyes as she glanced up at him. He seemed to be framing a question with his lips. The girl pointed to the photograph, and then to the miniature, and then to him, as though to indicate that she thought the likeness were of him, but he only shook his head, and then, shrugging his great shoulders, he took the photograph from her, and having carefully rewrapped it, placed it again at the bottom of his quiver. For a few moments he sat in silence, his eyes bent upon the ground, while Jane held the little locket in her hand, turning it over and over, in an endeavour to find some further clue that might lead to the identity of its original owner. At length, a simple explanation occurred to her. The locket had belonged to Lord Greystoke, and the likenesses were of himself and Lady Alice. The wild creature had simply found it in the cabin by the beach. How stupid of her to not have thought of that solution before. But to account for the strange likeness between Lord Greystoke and this forest god, that was quite beyond her, and it is not strange that she could not imagine that this naked savage was indeed an English nobleman. At length, Tarzan looked up to watch the girl as she examined the locket. He could not fathom the meaning of the faces within, but he could read the interest and fascination upon the face of the live young creature by his side. She noticed that he was watching her, and thinking that he wished his ornament again, she held it out to him. He took it from her, and taking the chain with his two hands, he placed it about her neck, smiling at her expression of surprise at his unexpected gift. 
Jane shook her head vehemently, and would have removed the golden links from about her throat, but Tarzan would not let her. Taking her hands in his, when she insisted upon it, he held them tightly to prevent her. At last, she desisted, and with a little laugh, raised the locket to her lips. Tarzan did not know precisely what she meant, but he guessed correctly that it was her way of acknowledging the gift, and so he rose, and taking the locket in his hand, stooped gravely like some courtier of old, and pressed his lips upon it where hers had rested. It was a stately and gallant little compliment, performed with the grace and dignity of utter unconsciousness of self. It was growing dark now, and so they ate again of the fruit which was both food and drink for them. Then Tarzan rose, and, leading Jane to the little bower he had erected, motioned her to go within. For the first time in hours, a feeling of fear swept over her, and Tarzan felt her draw away, as though shrinking from him. Contact with this girl, for half a day, had left a very different Tarzan from the one on whom the morning sun had risen. Now, in every fiber of his being, heredity spoke louder than training. He had not in one swift transition become a polished gentleman from a savage ape-man, but at last the instincts of the former predominated, and over all was the desire to please the woman he loved, and to appear well in her eyes. So Tarzan of the Apes did the only thing he knew to assure Jane of her safety. He removed his hunting-knife from its sheath, and handed it to her hilt first, again motioning her into the bower. The girl understood, and taking the long knife, she entered and lay down upon the soft grasses, while Tarzan of the Apes stretched himself upon the ground across the entrance. And thus the rising sun found them in the morning. When Jane awoke, she did not at first recall the strange events of the preceding day, and so she wondered at her odd surroundings, the little leafy bower, the soft grasses of her bed, the unfamiliar prospect from the opening at her feet. Slowly, the circumstances of her position crept one by one into her mind, and then a great wonderment arose in her heart, a mighty wave of thankfulness and gratitude that though she had been in such terrible danger, yet she was unharmed. She moved to the entrance of the shelter to look for Tarzan. He was gone, but this time no fear assailed her, for she knew that he would return. In the grass of the entrance of her bower, she saw the imprint of his body where he had lain all that night to guard her. She knew that the fact that he had been there was all that had permitted her to sleep in such peaceful security. With him near, who could entertain fear? She wondered if there was ever a man on earth with whom a girl could feel so safe in the heart of this savage African jungle. Even the lions and panthers had no fears for her now. She looked up to see his lithe form drop softly from a nearby tree. As he caught her eyes upon him, his face lightened with that frank and radiant smile that had won her confidence the day before. As he approached her, Jane's heart beat faster, and her eyes brightened as they had never done before at the approach of any man. He had again been gathering fruit, and this he laid at the entrance of her bower. Once more they sat down together to eat. Jane commenced to wonder what his plans were. Would he take her back to the beach, or would he keep her here? Suddenly, she realized that the matter did not seem to give her much concern. Could it be that she did not care? She began to comprehend, also, that she was entirely contented, sitting here by the side of the smiling giant, eating delicious fruit in a sylvan paradise far within the remote depths of an African jungle that she was contented and very happy. She could not understand it. Her reason told her that she should be torn by wild anxieties, weighted by dread fears, cast down by gloomy forebodings. But instead, her heart was singing, and she was smiling into the answering face of the man beside her. When they had finished their breakfast, Tarzan went to her bower and recovered his knife. The girl had entirely forgotten it. She realized that it was because she had forgotten the fear that prompted her to accept it. 
Motioning her to follow, Tarzan walked toward the trees at the edge of the arena, and taking her in one strong arm, swung to the branches above. The girl knew that he was taking her back to her people, and she could not understand the sudden feeling of loneliness and sorrow which crept over her. For hours they swung slowly along. Tarzan of the apes did not hurry. He tried to draw out the sweet pleasure of that journey, with those dear arms about his neck as long as possible, and so he went far south of the direct route to the beach. Several times they halted for brief rests, which Tarzan did not need, and at noon they stopped for an hour at a little brook, where they quenched their thirst and ate. So it was nearly sunset when they came to the clearing, and Tarzan, dropping to the ground beside a great tree, parted the tall jungle grass and pointed out the little cabin to her. She took him by the hand to lead him to it, that she might tell her father that this man had saved her from death, and worse than death, and that he had watched over her as carefully as a mother might have done. But again, the timidity of the wild thing in the face of human habitation swept over Tarzan of the apes. He drew back, shaking his head. The girl came close to him, looking up with pleading eyes. Somehow she could not bear the thought of his going back into the terrible jungle alone. Still, he shook his head, and finally he drew her to him very gently and stooped to kiss her. But first he looked into her eyes and waited to learn if she were pleased or if she would repulse him. Just an instant the girl hesitated, and then she realized the truth, and throwing her arms about his neck, she drew his face to hers and kissed him, unashamed. "'I love you. I love you,' she murmured. From far in the distance came the faint sound of many guns. Tarzan and Jane raised their heads. From the cabin came Mr. Philander and Esmeralda. From where Tarzan and the girl stood, they could not see the two vessels lying at anchor in the harbour. Tarzan pointed toward the sounds, touched his breast, and pointed again. She understood. He was going, and something told her that it was because he thought her people were in danger. Again, he kissed her. "'Come back to me,' she whispered. "'I shall wait for you, always.' He was gone, and Jane turned to walk across the clearing to the cabin. Mr. Philander was the first to see her. It was dusk, and Mr. Philander was very nearsighted. "'Quickly, Esmeralda!' he cried. "'Let us seek safety within. It is a lioness. Bless me!' Esmeralda did not bother to verify Mr. Philander's vision. His tone was enough. She was within the cabin and had slammed and bolted the door before he had finished pronouncing her name. The bless me was startled out of Mr. Philander by the discovering that Esmeralda, in the exuberance of her haste, had fastened him upon the same side of the door as was the close-approaching lioness. He beat furiously upon the heavy portal. "'Esmeralda! Esmeralda!' he shrieked. "'Let me in! I'm being devoured by a lion!' Esmeralda thought that the noise upon the door was made by the lioness in her attempts to pursue her, so, after her custom, she fainted. Mr. Philander cast a frightened glance behind him. Horrors! The thing was quite close now. He tried to scramble up the side of the cabin, and succeeded in catching a fleeting hold upon the thatched roof. For a moment he hung there, clawing with his feet like a cat on a clothesline, but presently a piece of the thatch came away, and Mr. Philander, preceding it, was precipitated upon his back. At the instant he fell, a remarkable item of natural history leaked into his mind— if one feigns death, lions and lionesses are supposed to ignore one, according to Mr. Philander's faulty memory. So Mr. Philander lay as he had fallen, frozen into the horrid semblance of death. As his arms and legs had been extended stiffly upward as he came to the earth upon his back, the attitude of death was anything but impressive. Jane had been watching his antics in mild-eyed surprise. Now she laughed, 
a little choking gurgle of a laugh. But it was enough. Mr. Flander rolled over upon his side and peered about. At length he discovered her. "'Jane!' he cried. "'Jane Porter! Bless me!' He scrambled to his feet and rushed toward her. He could not believe that it was she, and alive. "'Bless me! Where did you come from? Where in the world have you been? How—' "'Mercy, Mr. Flander,' interrupted the girl. "'I can never remember so many questions.' "'Well, well,' said Mr. Flander. "'Bless me! I am so filled with surprise and exuberant delight at seeing you safe and well again that I scarcely know what I am saying, really. But come, tell me all that has happened to you.' All right. Thanks so much for listening today, guys. Really appreciate you tuning in. Remember to share the podcast with somebody that you know who might enjoy a good audiobook. Another World continues to grow and expand. I'm so excited. I'm really hoping to soon be able to hire an editor. And uh, if I'm able to do that, um, thanks to your guys' generous support, then I'll be able to put out more content for you. And that is what I really, really want to do is be able to get maybe even two episodes out a week. So if uh, you want to help support the podcast, you can do that at anchor.fm slash anotherworldaudiobooks and just click on support the podcast. Or just spread the word. The more people that listen, the sooner I'll be able to hire an editor and get you guys more awesome content. Thanks so much for listening. We'll talk to you next time. Don't worry. You aren't the only one. You aren't the only business that needs help. You aren't the only person that has a hard time finding the right help at the right price. This is where Business Bloodline becomes your bloodline to temporary and permanent staffing. Business Bloodline specializes in hiring internet workers to creatively solve problems for your business. Business Bloodline does all the vetting and only delivers candidates that make sense for your needs and at a cost that you can afford. But 60 seconds isn't enough for me to tell you why hiring through Business Bloodline is safer, cheaper, and less time-consuming. We would rather show you. To get more information or a business consultation, visit businessbloodline.com. If the job can be done on a computer, Business Bloodline can find a match. Visit businessbloodline.com and tell them that you heard about it on Another World Audiobooks to get 10% off your first hire. Remember to mention that you heard about it on Another World Audiobooks to get that 10% off. Businessbloodline.com